0: Please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Hear the gospel of the Lord as we have it from the Apostle. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, He trims clean so that it will be even more fruitful. He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to God. Please be seated. Our text this morning is the Old Testament lesson from the second chapter of Joshua. And we'll make three points here. Rahab's faith in action. That's in verses one through eight. Rahab's faith in words. That's verses nine through eleven. And then the oath. The oath. And that's verses 12 through 24. So we have Rahab's faith in action. Rahab's faith in words. And the oath. First, then, Rahab's faith in action. Joshua has assumed command. And he's now preparing for the invasion of Canaan. He knows that the Lord has promised him the land But the promises of God do not mean we cannot and should not take prudent action in seeking their fulfillment. There's nothing automatic about the promises. And just because something is promised to us does not mean we can be reckless or cavalier or casual about it. As we said last week, what is given must be taken. And so Joshua here, he wants some advanced planning. Some reconnaissance. And so he sends two spies from Shittim, which is a town just east of the Jordan, where Israel's encamped. And he tells them, look over the land. The text says, especially Jericho. And the force of this is, look over the land that is, look over Jericho. They don't spy out any other place but Jericho. This is the first strategic city that Israel has to capture. And so these two spies, unnamed, they go and they enter the house of a prostitute. And she is named. A prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab is not simply an innkeeper, though she is that. The the text And there are two New Testament references to Rahab, and both of them make clear that she is a prostitute. So they entered a house and they stayed there. The text is very careful to avoid any suggestion of an illicit relationship between Rahab and the spies. And while she is a prostitute, her house appears to be something of an inn or a way station or a tavern, or some combination of that. It is not a brothel. And so the spies are at Rahab, the prostitutes' inn, or house. And they're there so they can rest, gather intelligence, communicate with the locals, see what the situation on the ground is. And throughout the text, we see that God blesses them, and he providentially protects them. But they seem to be, to speak frankly, somewhat inept as spies. For no sooner do they arrive than the king, and king here would be a local city chieftain, the king of Jericho is told by some unnamed informants, look, some of the Israelites have come to spy out the land. I mean, obviously, they were seen and they were recognized almost immediately. And so the king, king of Jericho, sends a message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. The cover's already blown. But Rahab had already hidden them. Up on the roof, we're told in verse 6. And so she tells the king's messengers, Yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they came from. And at dusk when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you might catch up to them. The technical theological term for this is lying. (laughs) So, yes, Rahab lies. In fact, if you count, there are four distinct lies in her one larger narrative of deceit. I don't know where they came from. They left at dusk. I don't know where they went. And go, you might catch up to them. Now, this has resulted in a lot of discussion down through the ages. Was the lie justified? Why does God appear to bless the lie? Are there exceptional cases in which we may tell falsehoods? Do the enemies of God deserve the truth? Those types of questions. And I'm not going to address them here. (laughs) But let me make two simple points. And you'll see, I think, hopefully why I'm not going to address them. The first is this the narrator doesn't care about the lie. He neither condemns it or commends it. And second, both here and in the New Testament, where Rahab is commended, it is her faith, not her deceit, which is singled out. Now, of course, that's not going to answer all the questions, but it helps us keep our eye on the ball of this passage. So Rahab tells this tale, and the king's men set out in verse seven, in pursuit of the spies, in the direction of the Jordan, the text says, which clearly has to be where they came from, even though Rahab said, "I have no idea where they came from." I mean, there is an army encamped over there, two miles on the other side of that river, and everyone knows it. And when their pursuers that had gone out, the gate was shut. They must have thought they were in hot pursuit, that they were really close to the spies, because Rahab said they left about the time the gate was closing. Right? And the the gate was still open when the king's men got there. They must have thought, okay, we're close. And the, the gate finally shuts, and it's kind of an ominous moment in the text, especially if you're Looking at the text from the perspective of the spies This means now they're stuck in the city And so Rahab goes up on the roof And has a little talk with them before they fall asleep And so whatever wants to make of the falsehood The first part of this text Shows us something very simple and very important It shows us Rahab's faith works It's faith in action And faith never works itself out spotlessly. We are not saved because of the sterling character of our faith. We're saved because of the sterling character of the one our faith apprehends. Our faith considered in itself is always weak and and unclean and partial and broken. We're saved by the object of our faith. Sure, Rahab's faith, one might say, is marred although I'm not sure one has to conclude that, but even if one felt that her faith was marred by the lie, she is still, and the New Testament confirms this, acting in faith. Her faith works. And it works for God's cause. It works for His people. This is a good test of your faith. How is it working for the cause of Christ and for the people of God? And Rahab does this in an ethically excruciating situation. right? This is somewhat akin to Nazis at the door asking if you're hiding Jews in the house. And it's an action which puts her very life in danger. She puts herself on the line. The peril that the spies are in has become Rahab's peril. She's essentially become a traitor to her own country and her own king and her own city. Saving faith is lively and it works from the very beginning of its existence. Notice this is incumbent upon Rahab almost immediately after believing. It's not like the Lord said, well, 25 years from now, you might be able to handle this ethical dilemma of what to do with the spies. It's she believes and she's immediately placed in this situation where her faith has to act and live. There's no moment at which faith in Jesus Christ is not lively acting faith. So, why has she decided to act in this fashion? And that brings us to the second point Rahab's faith in words, or, or what we might call Rahab's confession. This is the heart of the text, it's really the, the, the pulsating center of the narrative. And getting to this point is the narrator's great concern, which is why he doesn't comment on the nature of the lie. This is the main point, and it's magnificent. Verse 9, she says, Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who are living in this country are melting in fear because of you. It's an interesting literary device that the author uses here. When it comes to the spies, Rahab says... I don't know. I don't know. When it comes to the Lord, it's, I know. I know. And what she confesses here was predicted back at the Exodus, on the far side of the Red Sea, when Israel sang the song of victory known as the song of Moses. That song says, that the inhabitants of Canaan will melt in terror and fear because of the Lord's mighty acts, and he will bring his people in. He'll settle them in this land. Rahab's confession is the fulfillment of that prophetic song at the Red Sea. And notice that Rahab uses God's personal name, his covenant name, the name revealed to Moses, the Lord. I know that the Lord Yahweh has given you this land. She does not confess that she believes in a God or a higher power or being. But in the Lord, the God of the covenant, the God who way back with Abraham promised this very land to his people. Now think how encouraging this must have been to these frightened, hidden spies. The Lord has given you, notice that as well, has given you the land. And all the advanced and sophisticated Canaanites are in dread of you. She's giving courage to the representatives of Israel for the upcoming military campaign. Faith encourages This is one of the ways it works. It puts courage into, it puts courage into the people of God. It works for the Lord's cause and for his people. And one of the basic ways it works is it puts courage. It strengthens the faint hearted. And so she continues and says, this is uh, both in verse 10 and 11. they, They both start with, we have heard. The word of the God of Israel has gone before the people and it's come to Canaan from the Exodus through the wilderness into the promised land and Rahab has believed that word. It's been, it was orally transmitted from the Exodus to the peoples in Canaan. We have heard. We have heard, she says. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And so it is here. Faith embraces and confesses the word of God. It listens to it. We have heard, she says, how the Lord dried up the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt. I mean, that would be pretty scary if you were in Canaan. What's interesting is that Rahab knows of the Exodus But she knows what it means. And what she does in her confession is she brackets the exodus. And she shows how she's learned her history. And then she refers to an event at the end of the 40-year wilderness period. The exodus is at the beginning. And she mentions the defeat of Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites. That's at the end of the 40-year period, just on the other side of the Jordan. These two kings, she says, at the end of verse 10, Israel completely destroyed. Completely destroyed means devoted to destruction. They were placed under the ban of holy war and annihilated. Now, we will have, Lord willing, a lot to say about this form of warfare And its implications later in this series. I hope to devote a whole sermon to this question of holy war in Joshua. But for now, we're going to move forward. So, Rahab rehearses something here. What does she rehearse? She rehearses a history of the Lord's might, of His saving action for his people, against their enemies. This is the source of her confidence in verse 9, where she says, I know the Lord has given you this land. Faith confesses God's saving action in history. We must constantly do this to ourselves. We must remember these actions of God, which culminate in Jesus Christ. Can you summarize the history of Israel to yourself? You need to, to nurse and nurture your own faith. You should be able to tell this story from Genesis to Matthew, to Jesus, to yourself and to your children. You have to be able to narrate it because this is the basic stuff faith confesses. God's mighty actions and deeds. It lists them out. It lists them out in chronological order in many of the Psalms. This is important because this history is your history. It's much more important, beloved, that you be intimately acquainted with the history of Israel than with the history of the United States. So Rahab grasps a profound connection. Exodus victory must culminate in possessing the land. Just as Christ procured your exodus from sin and that must result in your eternal inheritance. We look back to the cross and that means we look securely forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Rahab does this. She says the God of the exodus is the same God who will surely give you this land. Faith reasons. Faith reasons, and it draws the appropriate theological conclusions. Exodus means inheritance. And she makes an even more remarkable confession here at the end of verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God is God, in heaven above and on the earth below. It's stunning. A Canaanite prostitute. Swimming in a degraded polytheistic culture with dozens and dozens of gods, Baal and Ashtaroth and many more, makes a pure monotheistic confession. The Lord, your God, is God. He's the only God in heaven above or on the earth below. This is is a confession of a woman to whom the grace of God has come with extraordinary power and clarity in the midst of this dark culture. Faith confesses the one true sovereign Lord. Faith grasps his uniqueness, his utter incomparability to what, God says in Isaiah, Or to whom will you compare me? He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And this means, and Rahab instinctively gets this too, this means that he is the Lord God of Jericho. And the Canaanite gods are not the gods of Jericho. He controls in his sovereign majesty the destiny of the world. That's basically the equivalent of Rahab's confession. Thus the land belongs to Israel. For her God is the unrivaled, incomparable Lord of heaven and earth. And with this confession, this woman, this Canaanite, this polytheist, prostitute, has become an Israelite. She's become a believer with a theologically informed, confessing, acting, Faith. She has become an Israelite. Because you can be assured that all Canaanites are going to be placed under the ban of holy war and she is spared because she is not a Canaanite. Faith places one into the community of the church. You move from being a Canaanite Gentile, to being an Israelite. Faith takes sides. It chooses communities. It places you in this community, in this holy nation. And as an Israelite, she will escape the coming judgment on Canaan. And her and her household will be saved. Faith delivers from judgment. As Paul says in the New Testament... Our faith in Jesus Christ delivers us from the wrath which is to come. And to look ahead for a brief moment here, the holy war in Canaan is a type, a picture, a foretaste of the wrath which is to come. And this brings us to the third point, the oath. She asked for an oath uh, to seal The salvation she's embraced. She says, please swear to me by the Lord that you'll show kindness to my family because I've shown you kindness. She actually uses the Hebrew word for covenant love here. Used in the second commandment to say the Lord shows covenant love to a thousand generations. And notice, Rahab is acting here on the basic principle of family solidarity in the covenant. This is an often overlooked point in this text. She asked for the salvation, for the deliverance from death, for her extended family. Her salvation implicates her family. Faith implicates your family by God's own covenantal order. And in verse 14, the spies agree. They pledge their lives. They say, our lives for your life. Your family's lives. This is a blood oath. And lives are on the line on both sides of it. If Rahab continues to spare them, they'll be, she and her family will be spared. But she must tie, they say, this scarlet cord in the window of her house to identify it when Israel invades. She has to bring her whole extended family into the house to ensure they avoid destruction. It's like the Passover, when households with the blood sprinkled on them escape the angel of death. So this house, marked with this scarlet cord, will be spared destruction. Faith hides itself under the blood of Jesus Christ. And in all these ways, Rahab's faith continues to show itself obedient. And you know the rest of the story. She lets the spies down out of the window. She says, go hide in the hills for three days. Wait till the pursuers return. Then it'll be safe to cross the Jordan and return to Joshua. And that's exactly what happens. They return to Joshua. And it's interesting what the spies say to Joshua. They use precisely the words that Rahab told them. They go back to Joshua and they say, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands for the people are melting in fear of us. Now, it's often been pointed out that this story is not strictly necessary in the flow of the book of Joshua. At the end of Joshua chapter one, the people are ready to cross the Jordan. And in chapter 3, they cross it. So why this story? Well, it's here to show the abundant grace of God to sinners. Even Canaanite sinners. Even Canaanite prostitutes. That the grace of God is available even in the midst of certain imminent judgments. And so the story reminds us, in one of the most Israel centered nationalistic books of the Bible, that the promise to Abraham embraces the blessing of every nation. We are all Rahabs, Gentiles, alienated from Israel saved from our cultures and our degradation by the free grace of God. Rahab is an image of the gospel. The grace of God that comes to a a humanity lying under judgment. Lost. And Rahab remarkably becomes an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she appears in the genealogy of Matthew's gospel. Who would have guessed? How could she have ever known? This is something else about faith faith has profound and often unseen long term historical consequences. These little acts of faith and faithfulness that you do, they ripple down through history in ways that you could never imagine and you will not be privileged to see in your lifetime. This is a stunning thing that Rahab is an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. She appears in the list of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. She is one of yours and mine holy mothers in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Savior God of heaven and earth, the Savior of every nation, the Savior of the whole world. Jesus has Canaanite blood in his veins because of this woman's salvation and faith. And so Rahab reminds us, quite simply and starkly of the nature of true faith, Faith believes the mighty works of God, the God of the Exodus. Even as you are called to believe in the greater Exodus from bondage wrought by Christ. You always go back to that. We will do it here momentarily. Faith always looks there. Just as Israel always looked to the Exodus. Her faith confesses that the Lord alone is God in heaven and on earth and thus he will bring his people into Canaan, even as our faith confesses that the same Lord will bring us into the greater Canaan, the new heavens and the new earth. That's why that supper is a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. That exodus guarantees inheritance. That supper guarantees the promised land. In fact, it is a foretaste of it. And her faith works, and it works at great risk It it works in the face of danger to advance the kingdom. right? What does James say that Rahab teaches us? He says, she teaches us that without obedience, faith is lifeless and dead. Even as our faith is to be a working faith. Because the Lord has sent us forth into enemy territory. Because he's still saving and calling the likes of modern Rahab's because this is what the living God does. So let us learn from her example. Faith believes, faith confesses, faith works. Go and do likewise. Amen. Amen.